everyone. Thanks for tuning in today to this episode of the McGill Journal of Law and Health podcast. My name is Haley Laxer, and I'm a new junior editor on this podcast, alongside Sonia Hajo, my co-host. Today, we have an exciting episode with Dr. Nicholas B. King, Associate Professor in the Department of Social Studies of Medicine and Associate Member in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics here at McGill University. Professor King also directs the Policy and Data Science Program at McGill's Max Bell School of Public Policy. Professor King's research focuses largely on public health policy, ethics, and epistemology. In this episode, we discussed health ethics with Dr. King through the lens of the COVID-19 pandemic and through AI and technology. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this afternoon, Dr. King. Uh, we wanted to first hear a little bit more about the work that you do specifically in the field of public health ethics and policy. So hopefully you can give us a bit of a summary on that. Sure thing. And it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me to be on your podcast. Um, my work, uh, I'm, I'm an associate professor at McGill University in the biomedical ethics unit, and I also have an appointment in the Department of Epidemiology, Biostatistics, and Occupational Health, as well as the Institute for Health and Social Policy. And my work really straddles the line between ethics, uh, public health, and the way that we generate evidence in public health and in medicine. And I really have several focuses. Um, number one, I've done a lot of work on health inequalities and the ways that we measure health, um, and in particular on the ways that value judgments, ethical, moral considerations often kind of silently impact and inflect the ways that we do seemingly technical things like measure what health is, measure what health inequalities are, and how these kind of hidden value judgments are often black boxed and we don't really understand them, and they really impact the way that we use evidence. In a larger sense, I'm really, really interested in the ways that the the, the evidence that we use has such a huge impact on the policies that we develop in public health and in healthcare. Um, and finally, I'm really uh, moving into a, a field where I'm looking more at other sort of black boxes, whether it be the use of AI, whether it be the use of algorithms in making decisions in public health and healthcare. Thank you for sharing that with us. There have been reports of some patients being denied certain aspects of medical care because they haven't received the COVID-19 vaccine. So when we approach a dilemma such as this, what are some key medical ethics principles to consider and why are they important in the field of healthcare? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the bedrock medical ethics principles when it comes to the doctor-patient relationship is that a physician and you know healthcare workers in general have a direct obligation to work in the interests of the patient that they are serving. So whatever other considerations that they might have, their primary obligation is to do what is best in their medical judgment for that patient. So what that means is that there are very, very few situations in which we think that it is legitimate for any other considerations to impinge on that direct medical judgment. One example 
is when sort of population level considerations might come into play. And this concerns resource allocation under conditions of extreme scarcity. So at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw um, real cases of this, particularly in Italy, very famously, to a certain extent in New York and other places in North America, where hospitals had scarce resources that they needed to distribute to their patients, things like ventilators, things like the time and attention of doctors and nurses. And faced with more patients than the resources that they had, they had to make very difficult decisions about which patients will get those resources, which patients could be on a ventilator, and which patients shouldn't be on a ventilator. For each doctor serving each patient, they would, if they deemed it medically necessary, say, this patient needs this ventilator, we have to give it to them. But if there aren't enough to go around, then other considerations come into play. The most common way of doing this is known as triage, where what we say is, we are gonna have certain principles on which we decide who gets the, who gets sort of priority for scarce resources like ventilator. They can include things like prognosis. So we give the ventilator to the patient who has the best prognosis based on them receiving the ventilator. So all other things being equal, if a ventilator would save the life, definitely of one patient, but would have a low possibility of saving the life of the other patient, you give it to the patient whose life is gonna be saved. Other considerations which have been you know, raised and sometimes used are patient's age. All other things being equal, it's pretty broadly supported that for example, you'd give a ventilator to a 30 year old over giving it to a 70 year old because the 30 year old has more to lose. They have more life years to lose and they'd also probably have a better prognosis. You know, a second example of that is distributing vaccines, right? Here in Canada, as with every other country that's had mass vaccination for COVID-19, we didn't just make it first come, first serve, free for all. We had established priorities. We had sort of tranches of people. You know, here in Canada, the very, very first tranche included people who were old. Um, we prioritized people who were, had comorbidities, who are more vulnerable, and we also prioritized healthcare workers, right? And here we can see again that under conditions of scarcity, when you can't give it to everyone who needs it, you establish parameters on the basis of which you do that. So there are some other, you know, less frequent occurrences, again, where <clears throat> physicians might be justified in withholding treatment, but the scarce resource allocation is the one that I'm most familiar with and is sort of most widely accepted. So does denying a patient uh, resource because they're unvaccinated fall into that category? I would say it doesn't, I can't really see it falling into that category. Are there other things that we might consider, other rationales or justifications that we might consider Maybe, but they're not really well accepted. Justifications might include things like incentivizing further vaccination, right? We might make the social judgment that getting people vaccinated en masse is so important that it is justified to say, we will withhold medical care if you don't vaccinate yourself. I'm not saying I support this, but it is a potential justification.
Another possible justification might be that unvaccinated patients pose a direct risk or harm to healthcare workers. That is potentially justifiable. That said, patients very often pose potential harms to healthcare workers, right? Many patients have infectious diseases that pose risks to healthcare workers. Um, many patients who have, are undergoing extreme emotional or psychological distress might be violent and might potentially pose risk to healthcare workers. And in many ways, healthcare workers, it's part of their job description to subject themselves to some level of risk, but not you know, any level of risk. And again, we might say that it's that amount of risk. To my knowledge, the reports, and I haven't heard many reports of this actually happening, don't really bring up those justifications if they bring up any justifications at all. Thank you so much. That was such an insightful answer and really gives us all a lot to think about. Um, one thing that came up in our research, um, actually like myself, I, I received an organ transplant. So I'm one of those people that was prioritized for vaccination and uh, already received my third shot in September. Um, but one of the reports that we heard about is out in Colorado and in some other places in the U.S. and through further research, uh, actually some transplant clinics in Canada now are requiring that you be vaccinated against COVID to be eligible to be waitlisted for a transplant and to receive a transplant. Um, so we were curious if you had any thoughts on what kind of justifications might be used in that case. I have a couple of hypotheses, but um, would love to hear your perspective on whether that conflicts with these medical ethics principles or it actually reinforces them. Yeah, it's a great question and a great case study. And and I might have read the same news articles that you do, so I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with it. Organ transplantation isn't my area of expertise, but as, as you probably know, <laughs> um, the way that we design the prioritization for organ transplantation is based on a complicated algorithm that takes into account many, many different factors. One of the most important factors for the recipients is um, their post-transplant prognosis, right? So my understanding based on the news reports is that the justification offered for insisting on vaccination for the recipients is that this improves their post-transplant prognosis, right? Which again, I'm not an expert, but based on my understanding of the organ transplant algorithms, if it really is the case that being vaccinated um, greatly improves your chances of having a successful organ transplant, I could see it as a legitimate justification. That said, you know, I doubt that there's strong evidence one way or the other because this is a very, very new situation. So while there might be strong evidence regarding kidney transplant recipients and uh, kidney or liver transplant recipients and drinking alcohol or having or being alcoholics or something and their likely prognosis. In this case, it's hard for me to believe that there's, you know, a really, really solid evidence base. Uh, so that justification may be based more on supposition than anything else. Thank you. Um, so one of the justifications that was brought up uh, by some transplant clinics, especially the one at um, UHN in Toronto, um, was that 
after the surgery, um, transplant patients are put on a ward with other transplant patients who are severely immunocompromised after transplant and, and immunocompromised for life in case our listeners uh, don't know. Um, so they were saying that it could pose a huge risk if somebody on this ward contracted COVID, a patient, and then you know, spread it around the rest of the ward that it could be almost like a war zone is what is the way it was described. Um, would you say that this is potentially uh, an ethical ground to make such a decision to not list people? If that were the case, uh, I would say it's absolutely justifiable ethical ground. You know, I didn't mention this in my answer to your first question, but one of the sort of bedrock principles of traditional bioethics in the doctor-patient relationship is um, maintaining the autonomy of, maintaining and respecting the autonomy of patients, right? Which is that patients should, to the greatest extent possible, have the autonomy to make decisions for themselves, right? Whether to undergo or refuse medical treatment, um, whether to engage in risks on their own or not, right? We can, we can certainly recommend that patients, for example, not drink alcohol or not smoke tobacco products, but it's very, very, very rare, if at all, that we allow health professionals to directly impinge on the autonomous decision-making of patients. This is grounded in a sort of liberal or even libertarian philosophical perspective, where we say we respect individual rights. But there's one very important exception where we say we will abrogate, we will infringe on individual rights, and that's when a person's decision could cause harm to other people. It's literally called the harm principle. You know, and the most, the, the most famous exposition of it, I think it was a US Supreme Court justice or someone said, you know, my right to extend my fist ends at your nose, right? I, ha I have the right to sort of punch the air all I want, but I have no right to actually punch you. So the analogy here would be, okay, you know, a transplant recipient may have the right to go unvaccinated, but if their decision to remain unvaccinated could cause significant harms to other patients, then yes, that is a justification for saying, you know, we will deny the transplant for you. Now, again, you could say, well, why don't they divide up the ward and have a special part of the ward for unvaccinated patients, right? And that would be a, a mechanism allowing us to both respect their decision to remain unvaccinated and protect the other patients on the wards. Again, I'm not an expert. If that's impossible, then that's impossible, you know? Um, you'll note that I, I I hope I have, I keep saying their decision to remain unvaccinated, and I don't say their right to remain unvaccinated. Because again, you know, nowhere is it written in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you have the right to, say un to stay unvaccinated. We respect autonomous decision-making, but there's no bedrock underlying right to be unvaccinated. In speaking to Dr. King, we were really interested to hear more about the work that he did in the technology space, particularly around AI and healthcare. So we shifted to that for a while. I was really interested in you bringing up uh, health equity and ethics in AI. 
And we know that tech is just developing at a, at a pace faster than most of us could understand. And mm -hmm. especially as a, a, a budding law student at this point, I'm really curious to learn a little bit more about specifically the health ethics behind AI and how, you know, I've heard uh, in my very minimal knowledge that a lot of trials in the past were, were done based on a very like, white male standard um, and how this, you know, poses difficulties when algorithms are being produced for the mass population? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's a super important area for health, healthcare ethics, uh, law, um, and other, other arenas. So my, my take on this is as follows. What the promise, what's, what's the big promise of artificial intelligence as it pertains to healthcare? Well, I think the big promise is that artificial intelligence will do one of three things. It will either make decisions better than humans can, right? So for example, there are a lot of companies that are testing the use of AI or other mechanical means for things like uh, diagnoses, right? Things like reading x-rays or reading other radiograms. And there has been some evidence that, you know, well-trained machine learning algorithms might be better at spotting disease than humans are, right? So it can be better. The second promise is that perhaps machines can be less biased right? Biased in a number of ways, um, diagnostic bias, for example, but also things like social biases, right? Um, biases based on gender, based on race or ethnicity, based on, um, you know, sexual orientation, you name it, right? In healthcare, uh, I don't, I'm not aware of any particular trials, but in an adjacent discipline, the famous example here is the use of bail and sentencing algorithms in the criminal justice system. And one of the first, one of the main reasons that bail and sentencing algorithms were first developed was because judges were exhibiting race and ethnic bias in the bail and sentencing recommendations that they were making. You know, to be super simplistic about it, all other things being equal, they were more likely to recommend bail or higher bail or longer sentences for non-white than white defendants, right? So they said, look, if we can't trust humans to be unbiased, maybe we can let algorithms be unbiased. The third thing that um, potentially we could have AI do in the healthcare sector is to sort of automate decision-making in general, right? Decision-making of all sorts. So things like in the insurance industry, you know, how do how much should we pay for different things? Uh, things like research, you know, maybe we can automate a whole range of human decisions that humans either can't do or that it's sort of cost prohibitive to do. What I think is really important to remember is that anytime you design an algorithm, it's human beings who are designing and programming that algorithm, right? And this is what I referred to in my introduction to myself. The algorithms become black boxes where a whole lot of judgments, including really important value judgments, go into designing the algorithms. 
you design your algorithm, you design your AI-based decision-making tool, you, you give it or sell it to a third party, and they have no idea about the decisions that were made. They have no idea about the value judgments that went in. They literally get a black box and they trust it to make decisions that will be better, that will be less biased, or that will be more efficient or effective in some way. And this is the biggest concern to me, right? Because what we've seen in many, many different cases is that because these human decisions were black boxed, the decisions that were made ultimately by the algorithms actually wound up being biased in many ways, right? So for example, those bail and sentencing algorithms, um, again, you know, I, I won't go it, totally into the weeds, but they used a lot of inputs, right? Based on a defendant's past history, on their demographic characteristics, to sort of figure out the best bail or sentence to recommend. They didn't use race ethnicity. However, the characteristics they did use wound up being pretty effective proxies for race and ethnicity. And in particular, they wound up being pretty effective proxies for racial discrimination. So for example, if one of the inputs is how many times a defendant has been arrested before, and this is occurring in an area where there's racial discrimination in arrest rates, then you are gonna be replicating the racial discrimination in the seemingly objective algorithms. You brought up something else um, in your question, Haley, where you said, you know, using training data that's um, primarily or exclusively based on very small samples or very small and specific populations, usually white men, right? If you're working, you know, it, it, it's, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but you know, if you're working at a tech company you know, trying to train one of these algorithms, you're probably going to draw on the people that are close to hand. And it's probably going to be well-educated, upper-class, white, predominantly male. And again, this is the training data that is used. And this is how you get things like facial recognition software that performs very poorly on non-white skin, right? And I think that, you know, we are, we are at a real inflection point where the promise of AI has yet to really been realized, right? Right now, there's a, a lot of hype around it, which means, you know, in a, in a good way, we're not already sort of shackled to, you know, we're on the train, but it hasn't quite gone off the rails yet, but we can kind of see where it's headed. And I think it's really important and incumbent on anyone interested in health ethics and health law in healthcare in general, to be aware of this and to really spend a lot of time um, counteracting the hype by peer by opening up and peering into those black boxes. We could we could spend many episodes talking with you about this specific. You should. <laughs> People think it's magic, right? Yes. And yeah. It's not. It's incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. But again, AI. You know, the way I like to say it is this: AI shows real promise in solving a lot of problems, right? In answering a lot of questions, but humans have to pose the questions and we have to make sure that the AI, that the mechanisms that we use to answer those questions are actually good fits with those questions. And, you know, it's not just AI, you know, a lot of what sort of is billed as AI is, you know, it's not like, 
magic artificial intelligence, right? It's just sort of data science. And one of the first things you learn when you're doing data science is, you know, you need the right tools for the job. You know, it's like that old saw, like, and, and I, I really do think we're in the place where we have this hammer and everything looks like a nail. Oh my gosh, we are able to analyze millions of tweets. That's our hammer. We go hunting for nails. How do we prevent suicide? Well, there's gotta be a way to make this hammer fit with that nail. Maybe there is, but you do have to consider things like, okay, if you're training on Twitter users, who are Twitter users? Are they representative of the population? What are tweets? What do tweets actually represent? I work with a computer scientist here at McGill, um, Derek Ruths, and, and he's done a lot of work about this. And he says, you know, the thing about it is tweets, tweets aren't, aren't representative of anything, right? They're not representative of what people really think. They're not representative of people's interior consciousness. They're not representative of discussions. They're something else. And we don't really have a good idea of what they actually are. Yeah, I completely agree. Like all the, like, you know, the tweet, like all the sarcasm in the tweets and, and people on social media, like portray themselves really differently. So yeah, it's so interesting, honestly, but yeah, I'm actually working on a project now with a postdoc, um, where we're looking at memes, oh, right. Okay. And like memes and public health, right. And, you know, this is my postdoc, Maxime, and this is mostly his work. So, so I want to credit him, Maxime Polari. Um, <laughs> You know, and he makes a really, he, when he brought this idea to me, he made a really good point. He said, you know, memes are a different way of communicating, right? And we need to take them seriously. It's too easy to say, well, memes are just like, that's what people post to Reddit, right? You know, and it's not, it's only what kids do and it's not, right? But it is a form of communication that's really powerful and probably has had an impact on things like responses to COVID-19, right? But we first have to take it seriously, you know, and we don't really know exactly how to deal with it. Before we wrapped up our amazing interview with Dr. King, we had two final questions for him. One was with regards to instances of AI in the context of COVID-19 uh, research and development. And the second was around how health ethics have been really tested throughout this global pandemic on all of us? The answer to the first one is actually pretty easy. I know there's been a ton of initiatives using AI for things like predictive modeling of incidents and transmission of COVID-19, uh, trying to track vaccine hesitancy and so forth. M my understanding, and I haven't looked at it sort of in depth, is that nothing has really panned out particularly well, right? You know, no one has seized on the AI model that has really done a great job of predicting things. You know, there there have been some claims, but I'm really not convinced that AI, but, and I don't have numbers, but it sure seems like we've poured a considerable amount of resources into the promise that AI is gonna do something. Um, and my impression is, again, it's people working in AI who I think with the best of intentions want to help, they wanna do something. They have these powerful tools, but again, you have to find the questions that those tools are actually well-suited for. That's really interesting. So, yeah, but, the, but the second question is a very meaty question, yeah. Okay, so uh, to, to pull it back to COVID, 
I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the health ethics, not only in medical professionals, but in all of us that have been questioned and challenged throughout the pandemic. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think one, among many other things that COVID-19 pandemic has done, is it has really um, surfaced a lot of ethical dilemmas that are with us all the time. It has certainly presented novel ones, right? How do you deal with a, 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 an epidemic on the scale of COVID-19, global, of risk to everyone on the planet? You know, how do we deal with things like mass lockdowns in major metropolises and in you know across countries, um, in a way that we have dealt with in prior errors, we've had global pandemics before, but in the context that we have in 2020 and 2021, which is a sort of global mediatized environment, right? And one in which um, the activities of public health have to happen much more quickly, and they are subject to way more scrutiny than they ever have been in the past. So it certainly has presented novel problems, but I think what it has really done is it has, as I said, it's surfaced issues that have always been with us. Things like, how do you distribute resources under conditions of scarcity, right? Things like, who should be first to get vaccines, right? Who should be last to get vaccines? Um, who qualifies as an essential worker? So one thing that I've always thought is, is so fascinating, because I teach this all the time, is there are lots and lots of sort of ethical guidelines for vaccine allocation that take into account people's occupation and say, in the case of a, a, of a mass pandemic of something like influenza, it might make sense to prioritize people who are healthcare workers, people working in the vaccine industry, um, potentially even things like firefighters, police, people working in national security, because they're essential both to combating a pandemic and to the functioning of society, right? Um, you know, as you go down the list, it will also include things like uh, information technology workers, funeral directors, what are you going to do with all the dead bodies? Um, people in civil service, you need to keep the government functioning. To the best of my knowledge, and I've reviewed, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of these, no one ever said that grocery store workers are essential workers, right? No one ever thought that people working in the supply chain to produce food, to get it to us, to allow us to live through the pandemic in this way were essential. And I will, you know, Mia culpa. I never did either. I've taught this stuff for years, and it never occurred to me to say, wow, the grocery stores have to stay open so people can eat. This has really taught us a lesson about who we consider essential and who we need to function in society and what occupations are particularly risky. And I think it's, it's really profound. And, you know, I think and I hope that this will change our understanding of what constitutes important, essential professional work in, you know, in general, right? It sort of uncovered things about the functioning of society that we, we don't often think about. 
You know, a second area is things like health inequalities, right? Very early in the COVID pandemic, um, I actually did, you know, a, a few interviews um, where it was starting to become evident that there might be some inequalities in COVID-19. Uh, you know, to take Montreal as an example, very early on, um, some community and grassroots organizations said, you know, people living in poor neighborhoods, people um, living in neighborhoods with high uh, immigrant populations, racial, ethnic, uh, visible minorities seem to be suffering a higher burden of COVID-19. And, you know, I said, well, you know, considering the fact that essentially every other health condition that we track on a regular basis, you have similar health inequalities. It stands to reason that this will happen with COVID-19. But, you know, unfortunately, and I would think, would say scandalously, Quebec did not collect statistics based on race, ethnicity, or visible minority status. And despite consistent public pressure, still refused to collect those statistics. This had gone on before COVID-19. Like I said, I think it's scandalous. And COVID-19 has really brought this to light. And again, I hope that it changes things. So I think that, you know, we can go on and on and on. There's resource allocation things. There's triage. There's what do you do with the ventilators. Um, there's, you know, to what extent do we allow governments to, you know, um, infringe upon our civil liberties, our rights to travel, our rights to congregate. You know, again, I, I've taught my class for <laughs> over a decade. And for, you know, 10 years, I did a, a sort of fictional tabletop exercise where I sort of presented a virus X pandemic. And I asked the students in the class, you need to make decisions about things like shutting down the airports, about mandatory quarantine of people with things. And I always got the sense that the students were kind of like, oh God, you know, this, this is really, this is kind of silly, you know, <laughs> like this would never happen. Well, it's happened, right? Um, and I think for the generations of people who are alive today, these are no longer abstract issues. We've had to live through it. And I think it will really be a touchstone for our ethical analyses and our understanding of ethics and law in health and healthcare for decades to come. Is there anywhere that if we have listeners who want to learn more about health ethics or AI in health ethics, where could we point people? Ah, good question. Um, so my favorite single sort of I don't know, source of information about, um, you know, ethical and social issues around AI is actually a, um, a nonprofit research organization. They're called Data and Society. So datasociety.net. And they just, you know, they're a nonprofit research organization that really, I think, are at the forefront of talking about all of these issues. They don't focus on health or healthcare in particular, but if you're interested in this topic in general, that is as good a place to start as any, really. Awesome, thank you so much. Sure thing. It's clear to see how important of a role health ethics plays in our everyday lives and in technology, particularly around the COVID-19 pandemic when health ethics were really challenged in most of us in ways that we never thought possible. It'll be really interesting in post-pandemic 
times whenever those do come to see how and if things change with regards to health ethics, with the way that we approach uh, ethical dilemmas regarding health, and also how we use health ethics to govern things like AI and technology. Sonia and I had such an amazing time interviewing Dr. King, and we hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. For now, uh, stay tuned for our next episode, and thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.